I want to talk to you about a pretty large theme today. And it really has to do with the question of what makes me significant? It's one of the biggest questions of life. Because I think deep down, we're all looking for some kind of recognition to be noticed, to stand out. We want to matter in life. <laughs> Blaise Pascal said, fame is so sweet that we love anything with which we connect it, even death. <laughs> and I think when you, when you look around the world, we're all in our individual ways looking to make some kind of mark on the world. We want to be remembered. We want to be significant. And for some, they try that through their achievements. Through others, it's through family. Uh, Through others, it's mastering some kind of particular skill. Or um, Each of us is doing it in some kind of way. Now, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to be significant, there's no better place to go than the city, right? That's where you go because the cities are the centers of culture. They're the centers of art and influence and power and money and We're talking today about a city. Cities appear very uh, very early on in the Bible. In fact, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is often called, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and 28, they're often called the cultural mandate. I want to read that to you. It says, God blessed man in his, sorry, so God created man in his own image, in the image of man, sorry, (laughs) in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now that verse is often called the cultural mandate. And it was intended and it would have originally been understood as a reference to cities because cities are the natural place of fruitfulness and multiplication. Culture flows out of cities because that's where people gather in large numbers to share a common way of life and common place. And so um, cities are important to the Bible right from the very start. The first city that's actually mentioned specifically is in chapter 4 of Genesis, where Cain founds a city named after Enoch. But the most famous city that we see in Genesis is seen just a little later on, which is what we read about the city of Babel. That story of the, the, the Tower of Babel, it's only nine verses. So it's this extremely short passage for such a famous city. And because it's so short, I think it's really easy to miss the huge significance uh, of this story. This, this theme really becomes central to the story of the Bible as a whole. And that's what I want to look at. So, If just a few chapters earlier God commanded humanity to build cities and he blessed the building of cities, then why was the building of this city such a big problem? What went wrong with Babel? And I think we all know the problem wasn't that they were building a city. The problem was their motivation behind it. The people said, come let us make a name for ourselves. So what's so important about a name? Well, a name is what goes before you. A name is what represents you to the world. 
many ways, and especially biblically, what we see as a name can define who you are. And so they were building a city, not only for the purpose of human flourishing, but building a city to define who they were, to make their name famous, to glorify their name, to symbolize their autonomy. It was really a symbol of being masters of their own destiny. And that's what the whole idea of building a tower that can reach to the heavens, they're, they're reaching to the heavens with absolutely no reference to the God of the heavens. The Tower of Babel, I would always picture something like a skyscraper because that's what we know as towers, but actually the Tower of Babel would have been built in the style of, of Mesopotamia. It would have been what's called a ziggurat. And we have a, I have a picture of a ziggurat because virtually none of us will know what that looks like. That's a, a ziggurat. You, there's actually some still around uh, in, in, um, in that area of the world that you can go visit the ruins of. But they were basically these man-made mountains. That was the idea. That, and, the, and the Mesopotamians, that's modern-day Iraq, by the way, they thought of mountains as, as the, the, the meeting place with God, the gate to the heavens. And so this was a, a man-made mountain, not only as kind of a, a, a regular building, but it was really designed as a, as a temple, as a fortress. And uh, actually, Babel, one of the meanings of Babel is gate to the gods. And so that's really what this represented. But it's conspicuous in this short story that there's no reference made by them to God. God has been abandoned. God is no longer needed. And we can see that the, 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 the builders of the city are confident in their technology. So first of all, it, it, this doesn't jump out unless you read into it but, um, or, or look into it, but the, the jump from making buildings out of stones to making them out of bricks was a, a, a technological leap because you could build much quicker. You're making your own building blocks. The jump from using uh, uh, mortar to using bitumen was another leap. That meant that, that uh, you could build quicker and higher. And then they're relying on their own progress, consciously trying to do this on their own efforts. We will reach the heavens by our own methods by our own sense of progress. And so what's interesting to me is for all the, all the talk through history of how evil cities are and how bad they are, what we see in the Bible is evil and sin begins in the countryside, in a garden, and spreads to the city. <laughs> God initially blessed the city. It was supposed to be a place of, of blessing, of human flourishing. And, and what we see here is... Um, that kind of spread of what happened in the garden into the city. The, sit, the spirit of this city of Babel was in direct opposition to what God commanded in Genesis 1. So God commanded them to be fruitful, to, to fill the earth and subdue it. Well, they chose, rather than f- to fill the earth, they decided to all stay in one place and build a great city for themselves. They were discontent with their creatureliness, and so they decided to, to build a tower to be like the gods. And so the city of Babel is all about glorifying ourselves 
rather than the creator. And obviously, this is an ancient story, but as I look at this, I think it's probably one of the best stories that we have to understand our modern society, too. We call ourselves modern. What does that really mean? Well, uh, the story that, that the West tells about itself uh, is that, and you, you can find this in all sorts of places in, in, in just popular uh, culture, um, but it's been around a lot longer at kind of the uh, philosophical level. Um, we became, this is the story, we became modern when we realized as humanity that we didn't need God anymore. Once the Enlightenment came around in the 17, uh, 1700s and uh, secular reason could establish itself without reference to God, it gave us a new foundation for law, for politics, for philosophy, for science, for the arts. And so humanity had this awakening that God was no longer necessary. And so supposedly there was some new objective rational, uh, scientific foundation for life that had to make no reference to God. And so we were finally able to rid rid ourselves of all the old superstitions. And now that we know what the world is really like, we don't need God as an explanation anymore. And so Friedrich Nietzsche, towards the end of the 19th century, he he said famously, God is dead and we have killed him. And so what you see today is our heroes as a society are the self-made men and women, right? The people that we most want to be like in society are the ones that came from nothing and by the grit of their own determination and genius were able to make themselves into great, you know, leaders of society and business and culture and all these things. It's the self-made people, the ones that have to make no reference to anything but their own genius, those are the, peop- the kind of people that we, that we uh, lift up. And I think it's nothing but, the, the, it's the culmination of the society that sees itself as self-made. That's really what it means to be modern. There's a great book by um, an author called Michael Gillespie called The Theological Origins of Modernity. It's a dense book, but it's, it's a very penetrating analysis, I think, of What we mean when we say modern. What we mean when we say modern is we are on the forefront of of history. There is nothing else before, uh, nothing else that's come before is is quite like us. We're we're cutting edge in the history of humanity. Uh, We're unprecedented. And so we look at our technology to prove that, our ways of manipulating nature to, to, to... reach our goals, which are, to be fair, unlike anything that has been seen. But um, it's all about this attitude of making our name great, making making our mark on the universe. We will define who we are with no reference to anything else. And you can see this taken to the absolute extremes today where... uh, you need to make reference to absolutely nothing else, not your family, not your nation, not your biology, to claim some sort of identity. We will define ourselves. And so what you see is it's the same spirit as Babel today. It never went away. God confused the languages and dispersed the people, but we've continued on in that same attitude up until today. 
And it's not, um, the, the point of that book that I mentioned is, is that even though modern society touts itself as being secular, the reality is it's just as spiritual as ever. It's just that we've replaced God for humanity. We've just got a new God in town. <laughs> but it's just as theological, it's just as spiritual as ever. We've dethroned God and replaced him with ourselves and said, we will make our name great. And so this isn't the story just of one particular city in the thousands of years ago or the evils of society. This is really the story of the human heart. It's the story of rebellious, sinful human beings saying to God, I will make myself great. I will make a name for myself, and I refuse your authority. And something that surprised me when I first was studying this is that that city of Babel that we read about in Genesis 11 is actually the very same city of Babylon that we see as an adversary of God all the way through the Bible, right from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. But this city of Babel is the very same city of Babylon. Now, we also read from Genesis 12, the call of Abram, who later became Abraham. And what I personally, before studying this, I never really noticed that this story followed on from the Tower of Babel story. But when you, when you read them together, which obviously we're supposed to do, um, you can really see there is a very deliberate contrast that's being made. When you see the call of Abram, God says, go out from your nation, your people, and your family. And those three things, nation, people, and family, uh, are very significant because each of those three things are very important markers of identity. What's your nationality? What's your people group? What's your ethnicity, your tribe? And then even more particular than that, who's your father? What family are you from? And those, even, those are obviously still important today, but even more so in the ancient world, those were the markers of your identity. People didn't have surnames. They were son of so-and-so, right? From the tribe of so-and-so, from the nation of so-and-so. And so God tells Abraham to leave everything that would naturally identify him to the world. Everything that would make him who he is. And instead, God says, I will make of you a nation. I will make of you a great people. And I will make of you a great family of my children. And so God created humanity to be an intimate relationship with him to draw our life, our identity from him. And we see the rejection of that identity in the garden and then in the Tower of Babel. And so the, the, the natural way for things to be was for us to be intimately united with God. A child is defined by its parents. A work of art is defined by its artist. A machine is, is, is identified or, or um, given meaning from the designer of the machine. And so... The problem that we see in the garden is we rejected our maker, we rejected our father, we rejected our designer. It was a breach of 
relationship. It was a breach of trust. Sometimes we think of sin just as doing naughty things. Well, really, it's much, much deeper than that. It's essentially a betrayal. It's a breach of trust with the one that we were created to be intimately linked to. And so if what caused the problem, which was a breach of trust, naturally the way that God chooses to fix the problem is through trust. It says, uh, teaching, sorry, the natural way would be to learn what it means to trust God again. And that's exactly what we see in, in Abraham's call. Everything that he might have trusted in for his security, for his uh, identity, God tells him, leave that so that I can teach you what it means to rely on me, to trust me. And we see a commentary on Abraham's call in Hebrews 11. It's, uh, Hebrews eleven eight through 10, it says, by faith, faith really being another word for trust, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking toward the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And again, we have that idea of the city. The city of God is this theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And Another thing you see as you, as you look at what cities meant in the ancient world is cities were not only places of culture and production and power, but they were places of security. Cities were really a, a walled settlement. They were a place of refuge. They were fortresses. And so the city is what you would trust in when there was an attacking enemy. You would trust in the walls of your city being strong enough to withhold that enemy and protect you. And that, that idea you can see in Psalm 46, well, uh, many of the Psalms, but Psalm 46, um, it, I'm going to actually read that to you right now. Psalm 46, you have it on the screen. Um, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so the city of God isn't only something that belongs to God. The city of God is God. The fortress of God is God himself. He is the place of refuge and, and, and protection and security. I'm using my iPad for the first time here, so as my notes, I'm usually old school and use paper. Uh, <laughs> the city of God that we see all through the Bible, Psalm 48 also mentions this, um, and lots of other places. The city of God is where humanity places its trust in God, places its identity and refuge in God. 
He is the city. He is the place that keeps us safe. And throughout the Bible, that city of God is given a symbolic name of Jerusalem. Not only physical Jerusalem, but, but the new Jerusalem that we see um, in Revelation. But Jerusalem as a symbol of the city of God. And so, this is where we get the idea of the title that the Bible is really a tale of two cities. Jerusalem and Babylon. The city of God and the city of man, constantly at war with one another. Either we will make our name great, either we will make a name for ourselves, or we allow God to make us great, allow God to name us and identify us. Either we trust in ourselves and our power and our wisdom and our strength, or we trust in God and his power and his wisdom, his strength. And so you see these two cities that, that at some time in history were physically, naturally opposed to one another, but spiritually, eternally opposed to one another. It's a spiritual opposition, a worldview opposition. And you can only live for one or the other. And of course, the, the people of God are living in Babylon— the people of Israel were at one time exiled physically to Babylon, but spiritually, we live within Babylon, the place where uh, the enemies of God have say and have dominion. We live in Babylon, but we live for Jerusalem. And so the question isn't where we live, it's where we live for. Even though we live in Babylon, we live for Jerusalem. Followers of Jesus live for the city of God, his kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city where God's reign has its way, where he is our refuge, where he is our trust, where we rely on him for our security and our foundation. And so you can see this, the, these two opposed cities. You can't be a citizen of Jerusalem and live for Babylon. It's not possible to do. And yet, as I, I look at my own life and I look at uh, the lives uh, of, of us as the church and Christians, that is exactly what we try and do very often. We try and pay our taxes in Jerusalem while most of the time living to get the fame and the wealth and the power and the prestige of Babylon. <laughs> we try and pay to you know, our, the king of our home kingdom what we owe him while at the same time trying to get all the stuff that Babylon offers us. And this is where Jesus said, that is, it's impossible to do. You can't serve two masters. Either you love the one and hate the other, or you hate the one and love the other. You can't serve God and money. And those are—you uh, can tie, these, tie those in with, with uh, these two cities. We claim citizenship in Jerusalem as the, the place we're going to go— in the afterlife, uh, hoping that all the while God is going to give us the riches and fame and success of Babylon in this life. <laughs> but those two things are at odds with another. You can't live. You can't live for Babylon and for Jerusalem. And so the question for us is, where are we going to get our significance from? Where are we going to get our glory? from. Because one day, we will all stand before him, and 
will have to look in the face of God and endure that, that gaze. And I love there's, there's a piece of writing by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. It was a sermon that he preached uh, that I quote very often, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, you should go read it. It's only a few pages long, and it's incredible. Um, one of the things he says in that is, in the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. The Bible offers us two possible outcomes when we come face to face with God. Either that meeting, which is terrifying for everyone, either that meeting will be the most wonderful moment of your existence or the most horrific. If we've lived for our own glorification, then when you step into the actual brightness of his light, our pathetic little glories are just going to be shown up for the the sham that they are. (laughs) It's like when you think you're good at football because you've only ever played with your little group of friends in your backyard, and then one day Cristiano Ronaldo walks up and plays with you, and all of a sudden you realize just how much of a joke you actually are. (laughs) When you step into the glory of God, what will it matter if you're a billionaire? What will it matter if you own the, 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 the most successful business or you've, you've been a, 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 a king or a prime minister when you're next to the ruler of the universe? Jesus said in Matthew 7, and these are, these are some of the most terrifying words, I think, as a Christian. He says, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he says that, People will come to him on that day and say, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name and do miracles in your name and prophesy in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Get away from me. Depart from me. People trying to prove their worth before God by their achievements, by their spirituality, by their, uh, by their knowledge. How can you not know us, Jesus? Haven't you seen us in the paper? <laughs> Haven't you seen all the things we've done? And he says, I never knew you. Now that's two opposite extremes. Either stepping into the the presence of God and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. What greater joy or fame or satisfaction could ever be given versus stepping into his presence and him saying, I don't know who you are. I'm not impressed by you. 
there is another way. We can have that promise of stepping in his presence and being commended, being, uh, being glorified by God. That's the insane thing, is that God says, when you make your life about glorifying me, when you put me at the center, and I am your goal, I am the city that you take refuge in, when you step into my presence, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to give you a crown. I'm going to give you a place to rule in my kingdom. He will affirm our significance. Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what every little kid wants to hear from their dad? (laughs) If you don't hear those words from your parents, there's a big hole in your heart. If you never hear, well done, I'm proud of you. You're good and faithful. Imagine hearing those words from God. That's what C.S. Lewis said. That's what it means to become like a child. Um, when, you, uh, when you're like a child, there's no greater joy than hearing that from your father. That's what, it, that's what it looks to be childlike in his presence. To be known by God, to have fame with God, that's the only kind of glory, the only kind of fame that is actually going to last. Because God never ends. <laughs> And so if he gives us significance, if he glorifies us, then that is something that is absolutely eternal. There's no greater fame that anyone could ever achieve. Everything else will eventually burn up. Even if you're the most famous person in history, eventually, if the sun you know, burns out and, and all, of humanity, uh, all of human history is forgotten, it was all for nothing. But if there really is a God and he really says, well done, that is a kind of fame that lasts forever. And so, where are you going to get your significance from? Where are you going to get your glory from? And the disciples struggled with this question too. In the last meal, the last supper that they shared with Jesus, it's crazy, but they were busy talking about who was the greatest among them. You can read it in Luke 22. I mean, imagine you're in the presence of Jesus, the Son of God, the the Messiah, uh, and you're busy arguing between yourselves about who's better than who. Actually sounds quite familiar. (laughs) Uh, But it says in Luke 22, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, in response to this discussion they were having, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. He's contrasting two different different ways. Two different kingdoms, two different styles of leadership that exemplify those kingdoms and the way they run. Now, all of us, because God made us to to be co uh, laborers in creation. We, we, by nature, we all have our own little kingdom. Your kingdom is that sphere of your life where what you say goes. Everyone has a little kingdom. Some of us have bigger kingdoms than others. <laughs> but everyone has a kingdom. Who is the ultimate king of your kingdom? Every one of us lives in Babylon, but are you living for Jerusalem? 
because we're called to build Jerusalem in the midst of Babylon. Build the kingdom of God where what God says goes, right in the midst of Babylon. It's building his kingdom, the place where God defines your identity and what he says goes. And then, and then uh, Jesus, after that in Luke 28 and 30, uh, Luke 22, 28 to 30, he says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to rule with him. They're going to reign with him. And that's the theme that we see picked up right at the end of the book. We've gone from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the children of God reigning in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It says in Revelation uh, 21, verses 1 and 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in the next chapter, verses 3, and, uh, three to 5, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. That is the destiny of everyone that is a child of God. That is what God is preparing you for. You thought it was just about being forgiven so that one day when you die, you can go to heaven. No, it's so much infinitely bigger than that. God is preparing you and shaping you into the image of Christ. That's Romans 8, 29. So that he can entrust his kingdom to you. Think about that. We're all busy trying to build our little kingdoms with our little, you know, bits of paper that we call money and little bits of power. And Meanwhile, God is trying to give us the universe as our kingdom. Why are we messing around with such small-minded, small-town ambitions? And so... I want to reign in the new Jerusalem, don't you? <laughs> don't you want to reign with Jesus in the new creation, in the new kingdom? That's the only thing that actually makes sense when you know what he's offering you. Why would you settle for anything less? So the new Jerusalem features in the book of Revelation, but Babylon also features in the book of Revelation. You see this, it's the, the clash of Jerusalem and Babylon, the city of man, the city of God, uh, that is the end of the story. Um, Babylon is the symbol in the book of Revelation of everything that is opposed, uh, is opposed to God. You can read it in chapter 18. It says, uh, chapter 18, verse 10. Uh, it says, they will stand far off in fear of torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In a single hour, all the greatest achievements of mankind opposed to God come to nothing. In verse 21, it says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
the culmination of history comes to a showdown between these two cities. They're not just destinations. They're worldviews. They're spirits. They're ways to orient your life, either living for Babylon or living for Jerusalem. So it's not simply a question of where we'll end up after death. It's a question of which way our lives are oriented now. Which kingdom are we busy building now? Because we're all building a kingdom. By the force of your life, which of these great cities are you contributing to? Is your life contributing to Babylon and its ways and its goals? Is your life contributing to Jerusalem? God's ways, God's goals, his kingdom. And I think it's tempting to measure that just by how much churchy stuff you do. (laughs) But if there's anything uh, deceptive, it's that. Because you can't measure whether your life is contributing to the kingdom just by how much time you spend at church or how much stuff you do that is supposedly serving the church. Because it's very easy to spend all your time doing churchy stuff while really building your own kingdom, your own significance, your own, uh, your own name. And that's especially a sobering uh, warning to any of us that are in church leadership. <laughs> so I really feel the weight of that when I, when I say that to you. That is, that's something we need to be aware of. How much of what I'm doing in the name of God is really just building my own babble. I wrote a poem called Am I Building My Babble? I'm not going to read it to you because I don't have it. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it came, I was uh, applying to Oxford University for the third time uh, for a, a master's degree, and I, I thought I was a shoe in because I had all the right grades, I had all the right experience, I had all the right stuff that would supposedly earn me a place and, you know, their approval. And I remember receiving the letter, and I wrote in my journal, Lord, whatever's in this letter, you know, I just give it to you, and lots of righteous things. And, and I opened the letter, and it was, it was not an offer. It was, it was a rejection. And I just remember this, like, sinking in my heart. And I wrote this poem right in that moment. It was, Am I Building My Babel? Am I Building My Babel? A, a, a kingdom with pretty words, uh, 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 but really it's all about building my own kingdom. And that is, it's, it's nicer than that. That was terrible. Um, but that's the essence of it. <laughs> I realized in that moment that all the, all the work, all the grades, all these things, because I was applying because, oh God, you're calling me into education and doing all these things. And really, so much of my identity and what I considered make, to, to make me valuable was wrapped up in getting those academic achievements. And I'm, I'm grateful looking back. I did end up going to Oxford for a totally different kind of backdoor thing. But, uh, but I'm really grateful that God in that moment awakened me to how much of my identity was wrapped up in that. How much of my own little kingdom I was building in his name. <laughs> and it was a sham. And so I, I, I want to end here just with a, a, a little reflection that comes out of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, 11 to 14. 
It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. And you can insert there the city gate. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, and this is the challenge to us, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The story of these cities is the story of the Bible. And if you think of these two cities in opposition, these warring armies, Babylon and Jerusalem, um, we were all part of the forces of Babylon. We were all part of the besieging forces against the city of God. And yet what we read here is the king himself, God the Son, willingly left the, the security of the, the, the walled city. He walked through the gates right into the midst of the battle, right into the midst of his enemies, the people that wanted to destroy him, so that we could enter into the city, so that we could be citizens of a city that never comes to an end, where we can have true peace, true significance, true power in his kingdom. And so, let us go outside the camp. And I, I read that as a, as a call to us as the church to get out of the comfort, the, the secure bubbles that we build for ourselves and go out where Jesus is. Go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured because the truth is the feeble walls, well, you know, the walls of a bubble are pretty thin. Those walls that we build can never really protect us. They can never really give us the significance that we're searching for. We have to go out because the truth is he is the fortress. He is the city. He is our home. And that's a good encouragement to me because I've grown up without having a sense of home, growing up as a third culture kid. And the realization that I'm a citizen of heaven, that changes everything. We follow him because he is the lasting city. We place our trust not in the city of man, but in God's city in the city that is to come. And I want to end again with more words from C.S. Lewis. Uh, you can tell I'm a fan. They're from Mere Christianity. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed in, uh, I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Let's pray together. Well, Father God, <laughs> thank you that when your light invades our lives, we get to see the, the sham that our little kingdoms are, our little small-minded ambitions are. Lord, we can't even grasp the, the magnitude of what you offer us in your kingdom. The joy, the privilege that it is to be called your children, your heirs, that we could reign with you forever. 
Father God, I pray you give us a glimpse of the, the bigness of that, of your goal of history to make sons and daughters shaped in the image of Jesus so that you could entrust us with everything we were created for, with your kingdom. Lord, we are privileged. We're convicted. Lord, give us the courage, the boldness to follow where you are outside of the camp, outside of our protected, comfortable spaces that we try and protect ourselves in. Lord, because you are our fortress. You are our lasting city. And we will put our trust in you, Lord, in Jesus' name.